Good morning, everyone. I'm going to read Psalm 1, and as I do, please contemplate the ways of the blessed versus the ways of the wicked. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. My prayer this morning, um, it was really on my heart to, to really just focus this prayer for the people of Ukraine. You may have received a map coming in. And as I'm praying, I invite you to just trace the border of Ukraine as a symbol of covering the country with our prayers. So please join me in prayer. God of peace and justice, you are bigger than this moment, and we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We're heartbroken at the loss of life. And the... and the unnecessary suffering that is unfolding. We pray for all those who are living in fear that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. Give safe passage to those fleeing their homes. We pray for those leaders with power over war or peace. Please give them wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decisions to end this war. We pray for the neighboring countries who are receiving um, those who are fleeing right now and who can see and hear the explosions. It's right next door to them. We also stand in solidarity with those in Russia who are trying to get their government to choose a different peaceable course of action. We ask that you would protect cover and keep these protesters as they put their bodies on the line in the name of what is just and righteous. Above all, we pray for all your precious children at risk and in fear that you would hold and protect them. Hear the cries of your people, O oh God. Lord, have mercy. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Um, I'm going to invite Tim back over, actually, and we are going to read um, the scripture for today, which is Daniel 11, 2 through 45. Um, yes, you did hear me correctly, 2 through 45. So buckle up, everybody. Here we go. <laughs> now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, 
nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king to the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army, fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will return back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, 
The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the, end, the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women. Nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end of the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. The word of the Lord. Thank you uh, for reading that. Um, both of you, may the Lord uh, bless to us the reading of his word. And you go, right, how can he possibly bless the reading of that chapter? 
um, what can we possibly get out of this chapter? Uh, well, let's pray. Blessed Lord, who you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I feel that's a bit of a necessary prayer uh, with this chapter. Remind ourselves God has given us all of Holy Scripture. Well, the world uh, admires and is inspired by the uh, resistance of the Ukrainian people and its president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, in the face of Russian aggression. And as Zelensky has risen to the occasion, uh, he has refused to flee, and he is providing a very different sort of leadership than Putin. And the world is showing its own resistance in many different ways, by flying the Ukrainian flag everywhere, by projecting the flag onto famous buildings, the Eiffel Tower, the Sydney Opera House, uh, the Empire State Building, and many, many more buildings around the world. Um, by last Saturday night, inviting onto for the opening of uh, Saturday Night Live the Ukrainian choir uh, singing the Ukrainian hymn. And by various standing ovations. So there was a standing ovation in Congress at the, for the State of the Union address for the Ukrainian ambassador. Uh, so standing ovations are um, common during such an address, but this was a rare moment of uh, cross-party unity um, and uh, brotherhood of feeling. Uh, in uh, London, in the uh, House of Commons, a standing ovation for the Ukrainian ambassador, uh, and this is something that is exceedingly rare. And then the European Parliament, uh, standing ovation for President Zelensky as he addressed the parliament by video link. Now, these are all uh, relatively costless but effective expressions of solidarity with the people of Ukraine in their resistance to Russian aggression. And uh, as I continue to follow the war in Ukraine through the lens of Daniel, as I mentioned last week, I find that this chapter, chapter 11, is even more relevant than chapter 10 was. And uh, as I read this chapter this week, I can't help but think of the conflict going on in Ukraine. Now, we saw last week that chapters 10 through 12 contain the fourth and final vision given to Daniel. And chapter 10 contained a lengthy introduction that we looked at last week. Chapter 11, verse 2 to 12, verse 4, contains the actual message uh, that the angel gives as part of the vision. Um, and then there's an epilogue, the rest of chapter 12. I'm going to leave the, those first four verses of chapter 12 for next week. Uh, so we'll focus on chapter 11. But just chapter 11, as you've heard, is very, very long. Uh, it took, I don't know, eight and a half or nine minutes to read. Um, and doesn't sound to be very promising material. So were you able to keep track of the people and the events during the reading? Um, no. Uh, well, it sounds like a history book. And it's of a period of history that none of us know anything about. We generally don't study this at all. Uh, now, most of the chapter can be mapped onto the history of the ancient Near East over a period of about 350 years, from about 520 down to 165 or so. But this chapter doesn't serve very well as a history text. 
Many kings are mentioned, but we're not given any of their names. So it's not very helpful as a history text. What sort of text is it then? Well, I find it helpful to think of this chapter as showing patterns of history rather than actual history itself. And with patterns, we don't need to know the actual names. So uh, for you data scientists here, this is a bit like uh, anonymizing data um, to, get a, uh, to, to discern patterns. So more important than the names, or rather the missing names, uh, is the repeated vocabulary and the themes, because these demonstrate patterns. And I want to highlight four groups of words. And uh, as I go through these, I hope that you might then recall how frequently these words occurred in this reading. The most obvious vocabulary is of kings and kingdoms and dominion, and these kings were always on the move. They rise up, they come, that is usually they're coming against the other kingdom, and then they return, they go back home. This is what most kings in the ancient world did. So we're being shown patterns of behavior. Kings arose and they were constantly attacking, trying to grow their kingdom. Now twice in verse four, NIV translates the word kingdom as empire. And I wish that they had done that more frequently. Now what's the difference between a kingdom and an empire? So a king rules over his own people. The kingdom and the people are one. And as we saw last week in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, it presents family clans, land, language, and people, all as a quartet of features defining each of the 70 peoples of that chapter. Now by contrast, an empire contains many peoples, and all the kings in this chapter are rulers of empire, not merely of kingdoms. And empires are insatiable. They're insatiable for land, for people, for power and wealth. Empires need other peoples and lands in order to satisfy their insatiable appetite because the empire supplies the capital city. The body, that is the empire, supplies the head, the capital, which is literally the head. Now, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Daniel chapter 11 um, and uh, follow along a little bit here. Because the chapter features four empires. Verses two through four serve as a very quick introduction, but these cover 200 years of history. And the sequence of empires, of these four empires that feature in the chapter, begin with the Persian Empire in verse two, in which more kings will arise. Well, how many more kings? Well, the familiar pattern of three plus one that we've seen a number of times in this book. Now, there are actually 13 kings for the Persian Empire, beginning with Cyrus the Great, but in the imagery that we've seen again and again in this book, there are three plus one, where the fourth is the pinnacle of power, wealth, and fearsome strength. The Persian Empire was huge, and its kings lived in great splendor. But empires never satisfied. And so two of those kings attempted to conquer Greece, make their empire even bigger. Next, a mighty king arises in verse three. This is Alexander the Great, who rapidly conquered the Persian empire out of revenge for their attempt to conquer him. And ominously, we read that he does as he pleases, 
which is a recurring theme throughout the chapter, and was first used of the Persian kings in, chap in chapter eight, verse four. But Alexander's empire doesn't last long. As soon as he arises, it is broken up and divided to the four points of the compass, verse four. And after his early death, his generals squabbled over the empire, carving out their own little mini empires. So these three verses, this has all been covered in, in the earlier vision, Daniel's second vision of chapter eight, where we saw the two-horned ram was Persia, the one-horned goat was Greece, Alexander's empire, and the four horns were the successor empires. So these three verses serve as an introduction, a very rapid survey of uh, more than two centuries of history, but showing patterns. And then the pace slows down for the kings of the north and the south in verses five through 20. And these are the rulers of the Seleucid Empire in Syria and the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt. And these were the two most successful empires to emerge from the pieces of Alexander's massive empire. And they are north and south with respect to Jerusalem. That's the perspective. And these verses cover about 130 years. So there were actually numerous kings of the north and numerous kings of the south. Though you wouldn't necessarily know that from reading this. And these kings spend most of their time invading each other because that's what empires do. And then the pace slows further still in verse 21 for a contemptible person. And the text does not identify him as a king because, quote, he is not being given the honor of royalty. Nevertheless, he seizes the crown and he behaves like a king. Now it's unclear if this usurper king is the subject all the way through the end of the chapter. Uh, opinions differ on that. But that's basically the broad div division of how the chapter works. So this chapter is about kings and kingdoms. And most of it is about dueling empires. So first there was the east-west duel between Persia and Greece. Next is a north-south duel between um, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. New rulers regularly arise and they attempt to get dominance over the other empire. And if you want to know details of which king, fighting which kings, uh, you can consult a detailed commentary. But I'm not gonna give you that information because I don't think that's actually primarily what this angelic message is really about, about the actual history. It's concerned about patterns of history. And then Jerusalem is caught in between these two empires of north and south. But Jerusalem is used to being in between. Previously, it was in between the ram that charged from the west to the east and the goat that charged from the east to the west. And not much changed when Jerusalem's occupier transitioned from the Persian Empire to Alexander's Greek Empire. But now the conflict has come closer to home since the capital cities of the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire are much closer, and the routes along which the kings go, of these two go back and forth run right through the land of Israel. But uh, Jerusalem is not directly impacted during at least the first uh, few rounds of the dueling. So that's the first set of language, kings, kingdoms, empires, dominion. The second set of repeated language is military language, 
We read of armies and fortresses. There are siege ramps to catch rid of the fortresses of the other side. There are numerous words for strength and for power. And these empires are always fighting one another. Sometimes one army is so powerful that it sweeps the other side away like a flood. This is particularly evident in chapters in verses 10 through 13 where we've got a sort of arms escalation going on, bigger and bigger armies fighting each other. There is rarely a moment of peace in the chapter. And again, this is what human empires do. And then the third set of language concerns deceit. Three times there is an attempt to make an alliance between the empires. And uh, twice that works by one king giving his daughter in marriage to the other king. That's the way it worked back then. Um, and uh, love had nothing to do with it. And this was actually the same as uh, Vladimir of Kiev, for Vladimir of Kiev in the year 988 that I mentioned last week. The Byzantine emperor gave his sister in marriage in return for military support on condition that Vladimir convert to Christianity. Now in verse six, it's the daughter of the king of the south. In verse 17, it's the daughter of the king of the north. So they each take turns trying to make these marriage alliances. But these are not honest deals. Because in both cases, the father of the bride was not seriously seeking peace. Instead, he was using his daughter as a means to infiltrate the enemy court. And so we read that when the king of the south gave his daughter to the king of the north in verse six, there was a betrayal because the king of the north abandoned his new wife, that king's daughter, and went back to his first wife. And much bloodshed ensued from that. And then in verse 17, it's the king of the north gives his daughter, quote, in order to overthrow the kingdom. But she frustrated her father's deceitful design by actually being loyal to her husband. And then the deception continues. In verse 27, the two kings of north and south, quote, sit at the same table and lie to each other. What a wonderful image. Um, because it's impossible for rulers of two empires to sit at the same table and be honest with one another. By definition, empire doesn't really allow the presence of another empire in the vicinity. And then a final set of words concerns arrogance. And this too is of the nature of empire. In chapter eight, verse four, we read that the ram, that is Persia, did as it pleases. Now we read the same thing three more times of Alexander the Great in verse three, the mighty king, of the king of the north in verse 16, and of the final king in verse 36. We read that the king of the south was filled with pride in verse 12, and that the final king exalts and magnifies himself above every god, verses 36 to 37. And this is the goal of every emperor, whether Babylonian or Persian or Greek or Roman, the delusion of thinking himself God. And we've seen this theme throughout this book of Daniel, this delusion of uh, being equal to God. So empire, power, deceit, and arrogance. This vocabulary, these four themes is repeated throughout this chapter because it's true of all empire. This is the pattern. The individual king may change, but the patterns of history remain the same. And some rulers are such effective empire builders that they are called great. Cyrus the Great and Darius the Great of the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, Antiochus the Third, the Great of the Seleucid Empire, 
More recently, we had Peter and Catherine the Great of Russia, Empire. But others are given less noble moniker. So we had Ivan the Terrible, the first Tsar of Russia. Empire, power, deceit, and arrogance. This is true of Putin. Uh, he is not leading Russia as a president, but as an absolute monarch, as, a, as the Tsar. So how will he be known? Putin the Great or Putin the Terrible? Or will his name be blotted out? Now this is all very different from the way that Israel's king was supposed to behave. He was to lead the people in righteousness and justice. He was to shepherd the people so that all flourish, especially the weak, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, the stranger. Now, as these kings of the north and the south fight each other for dominance, the conflict does eventually come to Jerusalem. The king of the north establishes himself in the beautiful land in verse 16. So Jerusalem and the land of Israel passes from the Ptolemaic empire of the south to the Seleucid empire of the north. And this happened under Antiochus III. That's Antiochus the Great. But the angel doesn't call this king of the north great. Instead, we read that this king does as he pleases, just like the Persian kings, just like Alexander. And in Daniel, this is never a compliment. It indicates a coming fall. And this is what happens. The king overstepped himself and quickly came to ruin. So his devious plan to gain control of the south by marrying off his daughter to the king of the south was frustrated when she actually proved loyal to her husband. And so the king of the north turned his attention elsewhere to capture territory because that's what empires do. And he ran, but he ran into a new and rising power because the commander of verse 18 is the commander of the Roman army. And he suffered an uh, devastating defeat by Rome, and they imposed an enormous fine um, on him. And then he was killed on his way home. So swift was his fall. And he was succeeded by one son, then another. The first son was killed, verse 20, and then the second son is the contemptible person of verse 21. And this is Antiochus IV. And he will be the focus of um, most, if not all, of the rest of the chapter. And though of royal blood, he was not in the line of succession, but he seized the throne, we read in verse 21, through intrigue and by acting deceitfully in verse 22. And then he attacked the king of the south. And then we get this image of the two kings sit at the same table and they lie to each other. Yeah, each trying to use the other. And uh, he returned home with his heart set against the Holy Covenant, that is, against God's people in Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem uh, comes under the direct line of fire from this ruler. After invading the south again, he is opposed, we read, by ships of the western coastlands. This again is the Romans who tell him to go home. So he's thwarted in his imperial ambitions. 
and has to look elsewhere. And now the pace slows further still. And I'm going to pay particular attention now to verses 30 to 39. So you follow along with me if you have your Bible open. So in verse 30, then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he's on his way home from Egypt and he's frustrated that uh, the Romans have stopped him uh, in his attempts to gain more territory and takes out his fury on Jerusalem and the Jews. And it seems what he did was he raided the temple treasury. He went back home and then he returned again uh, for a lavish gift upon Jews who took his side. And then verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. So Antiochus IV desecrated God's sacred sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem. And he did this in numerous ways. He abolished the daily sacrifice. That is the lamb that was offered up every single morning and every single evening, every day of the year, and had been for a thousand years, um, which atoned for the whole people of Israel. He set up the abomination of desolation. Uh, he put up some sort of a statue of Zeus, the Greek god Zeus, in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar, rendering it unclean. And he acted against all of the symbols of Judaism. So he's taking out his ire, his fury upon the Jews. And God's people were now faced with a choice how to respond to this brutality and religious oppression. And God's people respond in three different ways. Firstly, some Jews sided with the king uh, for various reasons, whether to save their skin or because they could profit from association with the king or because they supported his policies of trying to turn Jerusalem into a, a Greek Hellenistic city. And these are quote, those who have violated the covenant. And the king flatters them. The king rewards them. But they are corrupted by him. One of the notable ways in which they are corrupted is that they outbid each other uh, in offering money to the king to become the leader of the Jews. Uh, and this was the office of high priest, the prince of the covenant that's mentioned here. And uh, they bribed the king to put them into that position. And the true high priest, who was of the line of Aaron and Zadok, was murdered in the process. Others chose to resist. Verse 32, these are the people who know their God. They acknowledge God as the one true God, and they remain true to him, loyal and devoted. They firmly resist him. Literally, it's they are strong and they take action. And there were some who responded with active resistance. And one particular family of Jews killed the soldier who was ordering that they sacrifice a pig and then fled to the hills where they launched a rebellion, the Maccabean Revolt. And they took up arms. And the leader, Judah, earned the nickname ha the Hammer. Um, 
And this active resistance proved successful, and after three years, they recaptured the temple, rededicated it, which is commemorated ever since in the Feast of Hanukkah, which means dedication. But there is a danger in active resistance such as this, because the rebels kept going in their attacks on the uh, Seleucid forces, and eventually they drove them completely out of the land, and Israel became an independent nation again, and it needed a king. Now, unfortunately, the leader of the revolt declared himself to be king. Even though he was of the priestly line, he was of the line of Levi, he was not of the line of Judah. And the kingdom proved very successful militarily. It expanded to be as large as it ever was under David or Solomon. But it was corrupt. And unfortunately, the act of resistance, you ended up using the same methods as the oppressor thereby corrupted itself and eventually became the oppressor. And so the four sets of vocabulary words that are used of the empires then could be applied to the independent nation of uh, Israel at the end of the second century, early first century. So that's the second form of resistance, active resistance which ends up uh, with the oppressed looking, becoming the oppressor. And then there's another form of resistance, verses 33 through 35. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The wise did not take up arms. Instead, they gave instruction on how to understand the times. So who are these wise people? Well, they are the spiritual successors of Daniel and his three friends. Because one of the qualifications for Daniel and his friends to enter training for the Babylonian king's service was, quote, to show aptitude for every kind of learning be well informed and quick to understand, in chapter one, verse four. And the word translated there, showing aptitude, is the same word translated here as the wise. Daniel and his friends were trained in the Babylonian language and literature so that they could serve the king. But they also had wisdom and knowledge and understanding to be able to be faithful to God while in the service of the king. And they walked the fine line of serving both the king and their God. And when loyalty to the king conflicted with loyalty to God, they were not afraid to refuse the king, to defy his order. And they did so at great peril. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. His three friends were thrown into the superheated, blazing, fiery furnace. In both their cases, God did deliver them, but they did not count on that when they were thrown in to meet their almost certain death. Now the stories of Daniel in the first half of the book would help these wise people at the time of Antiochus, many centuries later. And they resisted passively, like Daniel and his friends did. They did not take up arms, like Daniel and his friends, they risked death. 
But unlike Daniel and his friends, God did not deliver them from death. They fell by the sword or the flame, by captivity or plunder. They were martyrs. But in their martyrdom, they were refined and purified and made spotless until the end. So, three responses to oppression. You can join the oppressor out of fear or for reward. You can respond with active resistance, responding using the same methods of the oppressor and risk becoming the oppressor yourself. Or passive resistance of faithfully teaching God's word so that one can understand what is going on, understand the times. And this then remained true in the time of Jesus. We read of the Sadducees and the Zealots. The Sadducees were those who had uh, cooperated with the Roman powers. The office of high priest was still bought from the Romans. And the high priests got very wealthy off of it. Then we had the Zealots were those who took up arms um, against the Romans. And then there were those who devoted themselves to study and teaching. Now the contemptible person, Antiochus IV, continued his imperial ambitions. We've seen that he did as he pleased. Now the fourth ruler to be so described after the Persians, uh, including Darius the Great and Cyrus the Great, after Alexander the Great, after Antiochus the Great. But as we've seen, in scripture, doing as you please does not mark you out as great. It marks you out for a fall. But what Antiochus IV did was he exalted and magnified himself above every god. And in verses 36 through 39, that word God occurs eight times. He exalted himself above them all in verse 37. Antiochus proclaimed himself to the word world as Theos Epiphanes. God made manifest. He presented himself as God on earth. And so he's known to history as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This is the pinnacle for empire builders, to be God. But he was resisted by those who changed his moniker from Epiphanes, God made manifest, to Epimenes, madman. And now, somewhere in the last part of this chapter, it seems that the angel is no longer describing Antiochus IV, but someone even greater than he, someone that usually Christians consider to be the Antichrist. And certainly, this figure at the end, Antiochus himself, and then the figure at the end, is a model for Antichrist, as shown by Paul's description of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now looking back, Jews see this figure fulfilled in Antiochus, and again in Pompey, the Roman general who marched into the holy place in the year 63 BC, again in Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem, the temple in AD 70, and Hadrian, who destroyed, um, more completely destroyed the city into AD 135, turned it into a Roman city. But these were all Roman generals. Um, they didn't set themselves up as gods. But the day would come when Roman emperors would do that and God's people would suffer as a result. Now the last paragraph of the chapter 
verses 40 to 45 as dark. It suggests some final battle. The darkest and the coldest hour is the hour before dawn. And we've seen this before in chapter seven and chapter eight. But this last battle is not the final word because the last half verse says, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. But many are left dead in his wake. Many of God's faithful people. Now, while it may seem that these earthly rulers are in control, there are little indicators throughout the chapter that that is not so. Because there's a fifth set of words I want to draw your attention to. Several times we read at the appointed time and at the time of the end. Whose time is that? Whose appointed time? This is the time that God has appointed. He will bring things to an end. He is silently working behind the scenes. Uh, Each of these rulers comes to an end. Each of these rulers who set himself up and does what he wishes, what he desires, comes to an end. And the Lord, sovereign Lord, has an appointed end, both for the empires and for history. Now in the book of Revelation, the churches face the challenge of living in a world controlled by the beast. Um, And the beast is a manifestation of empire at that time. And the seven prophetic messages to the churches indicate a variety of responses. The same, uh, similar responses to what we have in Daniel. The churches in Pergamum and Thyatira have compromised themselves out of fear. The church in Laodicea has been so co-opted by the world that it is indistinguishable from Babylon. It has become very rich, wealthy, prosperous, so much so that it doesn't need a thing. But it is no longer the church of Jesus Christ. And the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia have remained loyal to Jesus and are facing death as a result. They're using passive resistance to remain true And in the book of Revelation, there are four prophetic calls to wisdom and endurance. The two calls to wisdom is to see that the beast is not worthy of worship. The two calls to endurance is to be faithful to the lamb, even under threat of death. To be faithful to the lamb in worshiping the lamb rather than worshiping the beast. So Daniel and Revelation are both written to enable God's people to resist faithfully, to be wise, and so endure, to be wise by understanding the patterns of the time. Now we're not facing death, but we all face the challenge of living in the world, being faithful to Jesus. The challenge of resisting faithfully the pressures of the world. So what do we faithfully resist and how do we resist? Well, we resist being co-opted by the world pursuing the world's rewards. We resist responding to evil with evil, but instead overcome evil with good. We resist using the world's methods, empire, power, deceit, self-exaltation. And we resist with integrity by remaining true and loyal. We resist with wisdom and endurance and understanding.
Now, Putin is a religious man. Um, it's hard to believe that, but he actually is. But his religion is a virulent religious nationalism. The Russian Orthodox Church combined with the Russian state and the Russian people. But the Russian Orthodox Church has been completely co-opted um, by Putin uh, into identifying with what he is doing. By contrast, I'm struck by uh, some of the words in the Ukrainian prayer, that prayer that was sung on uh, Saturday Night Live last uh, weekend. With learning and knowledge enlighten us. In love pure and everlasting let us grow. Grant people and country all your kindness and grace. Bless us with wisdom. Guide us into a kind world. It is not a prayer to be made into a mighty empire. Now the Lord Jesus gathered a motley crew to be his disciples. There was a collaborator with the Roman occupier, Matthew the tax collector. There were one or two who favored armed resistance against the occupier, uh, Simon the Canaanian or Simon the Zealot, and possibly Judas Iscariot. And um, he gathered his disciples together to be one new family. And he gathered his disciples together for a final meal. And he started by washing their feet. He gave them a different model of leadership. And the model that he would lay out and that he still models is that rather than the body nourishing the head, supporting the head, the head nourishes the body. The head lays down its life for the body. It is the antithesis of human empire. And he gathered his disciples together for a final meal, which we repeat on a regular basis as we take communion together. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you and us all now and evermore. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you.